We thank you for the teaching we have already received. We thank you that we can have such freedom to come together, fellowship together as brothers. And God, we just ask, forgive us for taking these things so for granted. And Lord, forgive us for not being more serious and more dedicated to you. We just ask that you would come and help us. Lord, we, we need help in this journey of life. We ask that you'd keep us, Lord. We have made decisions to follow you. We've made choices. That's why we're here. But we ask, Lord, that you would please keep us. We ask, God, that you would help us to be faithful, not only in this generation, but in generations to come, if you allow us to live. Lord, we know that you're going to return someday for your bride, and we ask, ask, Lord, that you'd help us to be ready. Lord, even now, we ask that you'd help me, give me a, a clear burden and a message, help me to communicate. We ask, God, that your word would settle deeply upon our hearts. We ask, Lord, for that. We ask that you'd take the words way beyond what I even share or what my thoughts have been or what is communicated here and make it a part of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone could get me a glass of water that would be appreciated. Thank you, brother. The permanence of marriage. We like to think that on the subject of the permanence of marriage that we as churches, we as Anabaptist people sort of have, you know, we sort of have that, don't we? we we're sort of settled in that position. <clears throat> but i like to suggest that the society around us today is leaving its impact upon the church more than what we like to think. It's with sadness and a lot of questions that I reflect back a number of years ago at home. Where there was a couple in our midst who had been sitting in our midst for, I'm going to say, about five years. And we had endeavored to help them through some struggles. But while they were sitting in our midst, day or week after week, and fellowshipping with us, and being in our setting and, and sitting there, and they came to the place where they, as a husband and wife, literally separated right in front of our very eyes. <clears throat> they separated as husband and wife. Uh, today, uh, the husband, he's married to a Muslim lady. And we look at those situations and we like to think that, you know, we, you know, we sort of know where we are, we have our positions, we you know, we have our, you know, where we're at as a church. But I like to suggest this morning that the society that we live in is having an impact on us as Anabaptist people 
more than what we'd like to admit. <clears throat> if you go into history a bit, um, in the in the early uh, after Christ in the early ages, if you look at the history um, in the Roman Empire, divorce and remarriage was a very acceptable thing. In fact, it was one of those things that just sort of happened everywhere. But as time moved on, and quote, Christianity came on, to, on the scene, and, uh, and the Catholic Church, there was a bit of a, a revolutionizing that came, and in Europe, and it passed on into America, this whole idea that marriage is permanent. And I believe it's for that reason that even here in America, for, for quite some time, for many years, marriage was viewed as a pretty permanent thing. In fact, if you go into the early 1900s, in the, in the early 1900s here in America, it was very difficult for a man to get a divorce. Uh, the only way that a man or a woman could get a divorce is if um, the other partner had done something way out. He either was very abusive physically or was involved with another man or woman. Then the innocent party could come to the court and plead for a divorce. But if that, quote, innocent party was found that there's any, any wrong on her part, there was no grounds at all for the innocent, whether it's a supposed innocent party, there was no grounds anymore to even get a divorce. And so in the early 1900s, the whole idea of divorce and remarriage, it was around, but it was in a very <clears throat> suppressed, or it was viewed very negatively in, in, the, in the local communities. If a person divorced and remarried, it was a bigger deal. <laughs> it was looked at and frowned upon very greatly. But today, it's not that way. In fact, um, in as recent as 1973, no, 1969, President Ronald Reagan, he was the first president that I remember. President Ronald Reagan was the first president to come up with a law that, that said a no-fault marriage. It wasn't until 1969 that a man or a woman could go to the court and file for a divorce and not have any personal accusations. Either one could just go and ask to dissolve the marriage or ask for a divorce, and they could be divorced. They could go ahead and get remarried. That didn't happen till 1969. Prior to that, they would need to sit in court, and the man or the woman, they would accuse the other, and, and as a Jury sat there and listened, the judge listened, they'd make a judgment on the, on the situation. But it wasn't until 1969 that these things continued to progress to where the, it's the ease that we have here today. <clears throat> and a lot of that, if you read history, if you, if you look at it a bit, divorce and remarriage, the large push behind it, was what I'm going to call women's lib. If you read history, that's what it was. It was this idea that, uh, 
of freedom for women. That was a push. That was a push behind the whole divorce and remarriage. But I like to suggest, you know, even though we sit here this morning and we, what I'm going to say, I believe we have a fairly clear position on the issue. It wasn't until uh, 1969 that some of these laws had changed. And now look at where everything is at. If I would ask for a raise of hand in this audience this morning of relatives that you have that are divorced and remarried, I'm going to say that quite a few hands would go up and, and you know, you have some kind of relative somewhere that's divorced and remarried. I'd like to suggest that the whole idea is impacting us more than what we like to think. <clears throat> Let me read something to you here. As I was doing a bit of searching and, and, and research on the subject, in this whole shift of marriage, uh, it, was, it wasn't only the idea of it's okay to divorce and remarriage. There's a shift that happened on the whole idea of what marriage really is. And I believe that's what's affecting us as much as anything. Listen to this. Increasingly, marriage was seen as a vehicle for self-oriented ethic of romance. That's increasingly. It was increasing. And that's what brought in in 1969 to the fuller acceptance of divorce and remarriage. Increasingly, marriage was seen as a vehicle for self-oriented ethic of romance, intimacy, and fulfillment. In this new psychological approach to married life, one's primary oblation was not to one's family, but to oneself. Hence, marital success was defined not by successfully meeting the obligation to one's spouse and children, but by a strong sense of subjective happiness in marriage, usually to be found in and through an intense emotional relationship with one's spouse. I like to say that there's a part of that that I believe that is good. It's very good for a husband and wife to have a strong, intense relationship. But that has become an end in itself. That's where the focus has shifted. And once that isn't there anymore, we've, quote, fallen out of love. Usually to be found in and through an intense and emotional relationship with one's spouse. Uh, The 1970s marked the period when for many Americans, a more institutional model of marriage gave way to the, quote, soulmate model of marriage. You hear that term, right? The soulmate model. The soulmate model of marriage. And I'd like for us to just consider that there has been a shift. There has been a shift from our responsibility to our wives our responsibility to our children in, in caring for them, for loving them and being responsible for them. There's been a shift from that to where 
I'm primarily looking for happiness and what makes me feel good in my marriage and what gratifies me. There's been a shift. And I'd like to suggest that it's because of that that we're weak today. It's because of that that we so quickly, when things don't really work out, there's a shift. And we're open to the idea, well, it just didn't work out. It just didn't work out. <clears throat> now, I'd like for us to consider various different aspects of all this. And, and let me just give you a couple of the headings, okay? And I'll uh, hope I won't bore you too long this morning or make it too difficult. But here are some of the headings we'd like to look at this morning. Establishing the marriage. Here's another one. What act joins a man and a woman together? Here's another one. Does God recognize a marriage if one or both are not converted? Uh, here's another one. Does a divorce situation before conversion allow continuation after conversion? Here's another one. What does it mean? He causeth her to commit adultery. Here's another one. Is there any time when it is right to remarry outside of a first marriage? Here's another one. Does Scripture condemn polygamy? Here's another one. The accept clause. What does it mean? Here's another one. Is separating sin? I look at the clock, right? <laughs> Turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 2, to begin. <clears throat> uh, the first heading here that we like to take a look at is simply the establishment of marriage. Whose idea was it for there to be marriage? What is marriage? Whose idea was it? Was it our idea or was it God's? Where does it originate? <clears throat> Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 21 where it says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and we're not ashamed. We like to consider that marriage was clearly established by God. God in the beginning when he formed Adam and Eve. 
It's God's idea. It's God's plan for mankind. For there to be marriage. For there to be a man and a woman. And it's God that joins them together. It's God that brings a man and a woman together and joins them together as one flesh. And He calls it marriage. There's a permanency here. He says they should leave father, mother, and they should cleave one to another. They're not one. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Marriage is holy. Marriage is holy. Marriage is beautiful. There are God, as God brings a man and a wife together, it's an amazing thing. I love weddings. <laughs> Yesterday was refreshing, right? It was such a beautiful thing. A, a young man and a young maid to come together and they join their hearts together. They're going to live together and there's something so holy, so right, so godly about it all. It is. It's from God. It's holy. It's from God. It's ordained by God for the sanctity and the purity of the human race. It's God's intent for there to be marriage. So mankind doesn't just act like the animals do. Right? God has order. And so God brought that order to the human race, and he gave clear instruction and clear direction with it all. It's God that established marriage. Let's read uh, also in Hebrews chapter 13. If you want to turn there with me as well, we'll read chapter 13 of Hebrews. I think it would be good to just turn there. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. It says, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. That's pretty clear, right? Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Okay, let's move on to the next heading. What act joins a man and a woman together? What act? Here in America, we have our way of doing things, right? Yesterday at the wedding, um, uh, Brother Elvin, he... He asked them to come up front, and they, uh, he joined their hands together, and he pronounced them husband and wife, and, and we all, yep, they're now married. I'd like to ask you a question. Is that what joins a man and a woman together? And I just, and I'm saying this to help us think a bit. <clears throat> you know, some years ago, we were down in the country of Paraguay. And as we were there and we were working among various of the people, there's various of them that had gotten converted or they were getting converted and they were coming and they were saying, we're not married. You know, we want to we come to 
to, uh, to the church and we want to get married. And yet they have been living together for 10 years. There's some of them, uh, you, know, you, you know, they just knew. They knew they weren't married. Even though they were together for 10 years, you couldn't persuade them that they were married even though they were living together for 10 years. Those same people, if you would take them to the judge, and the judge, you know, it wasn't a church wedding, but to a judge, they walk up to a judge, and the judge would put their hands together and pronounce them husband and wife. They'd say, okay, now I'm married. Okay? Well, you know, you go over to Africa, and there is no church. There is no judge. There is no laws of the land that govern that. And you ask the question, well, what is it that joins a man and a wife together? What is it? You know, it seems like, you know, you go from place to place and it's not all the same, right? Is it the preacher? Is it the laws of the land? Is it having a wedding at a church and and the preacher pronouncing them husband and wife? Is it the judge at the courthouse? Is it living together? There are some countries that say if a man and a woman, they live together for five years, they're automatically married. Is it that? Is it a statutory marriage? Is it a common law marriage? What happens with those forced planned marriages where a dad uh, brings a an older woman to a younger man, and, you know, all of those types of things. What is it? If you look into Scripture, you ask the question, what is it that joins a man and a woman together? That's a good question, right? What is it? What, What act is it that joins a man and a woman together? like for us to consider two different scriptures this morning in light of answering that question. And I'd like to just put out two thoughts for us to consider. And I'm not an authority on all this. And if you have thoughts on all that, you can come to me afterward and you can correct me. Turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 24. And there's two things that I'd like to suggest to answer this question. Genesis chapter 4. And by the way, before I read these two verses, there's two things that i like to put out here as an answer to the question. First of all, i like to suggest that the first one is a commitment to marriage. A commitment to marriage. Okay? You know, all the men and women sleeping together and all doing all kinds of horrible evils. That does not bring marriage. I like to suggest that the first one is a commitment to marriage. And secondly, the physical relationship as the consummation of the marriage. I like to just put those two things out there as suggestions. As we look at the two scriptures that I'm going to put out here, they're there. And you consider that. Genesis chapter 24 and verse 67. 
It says, And Isaac brought her into his mother's tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. Where's the preacher? Where's the law? Where's, where's the dad? Where's... <clears throat> she became his wife. He took her into his mother's tent, into, into his mother Sarah's tent, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Turn with me also to Genesis 29, where it says these words. Genesis 29, and we're going to start reading in verse 18. And Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had for her. And Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may, that I may go in unto her. And Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Here there was a feast, with the other one there was no feast. <clears throat> It came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him, and he went in unto her. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah Zilpah, his maid, for an handmaid. And it came to pass in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Did, I, did not I serve with thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? And you know the story. He also gave her Rachel. But there's no question in his mind at that point uh, that she was married to her. A commitment to marry was present and the physical relationship as a consummation of it. I'd like to just put that out as a suggestion. If you have more thoughts, I'm open to hear that. Here's another heading. <clears throat> Does God recognize a marriage if one or both are not converted? Does he? <clears throat> Some years ago, I was working at a place of business. I was working in this factory. And in the office, there was a lady. There was a secretary. And, you know, I'd I, I known her for quite a number of years. She was a single lady. And one day, I hear that she has a boyfriend. <clears throat> and, oh, I, you know, I was sort of excited about it, and I came and said something to her. I, I hear you have a boyfriend, and she told me about it, and then goes on to say that the man that she's seeing, uh, he was married before, but then he, he divorced, and he started coming to church, and he got converted. And because he got converted... Uh, you know, um, everything, there's a clean slate and everything's good. That's the scenario. <clears throat> That's the scenario. I'd like to give us a scripture for us to consider. Turn with me to the book of Mark in chapter 6. <clears throat> 
Mark in chapter 6. We want to look at the account. And this account that we're going to be looking at here is of Herod and John the Baptist. Here is Herod. He was an ungodly man. He was not one of the children of Israel who believed in God. He was a wicked man. But he was married. And one day he went and he married his brother Philip's wife. And guess what happens? There is this controversy and, you know, they brought John the Baptist in there. And John the Baptist, he goes and he rebukes Herod for having his brother Philip's wife. This is what he says. But when Herod, this is in Mark 16, verse verse 16. But when Herod, which was a heathen man, heard thereof, he said, It is John whom, whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, Is it not lawful? It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother Philip's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not. I like to suggest that God recognizes marriages even when people are not converted. Very clear in the scripture. God recognizes a marriage, whether a person is not converted or whether he is converted, because it's a part of God's plan from the beginning. For the sanctity of the human race, it's God-ordained and God recognizes a marriage, even when a person is not a follower of God. Even if he's an idol worshiper, he still recognizes marriages. If you look at Genesis chapter 2 in the scripture that we looked at earlier, there is no distinction made. There's no distinction made between God recognizes this marriage if he follows me. If he's serving me, then I recognize this marriage. There's no distinction made at all. He's very clear with that. So, does, does God recognize a marriage if one or both are not converted? Yes, he does. He did not make any distinction. In Scripture, there's no distinction made on those matters. Here's another heading. Does a divorce situation before conversion allow continuation after conversion? You know, we get converted and we fall on our knees and we say, God, would you please forgive me all my sins? We name the sins. And all the things that we've done, we name them. We confess them to God. We ask Him to forgive. We ask Him to just take all those things away. Does God wash that sin away at conversion? Or does that wife need to, go to be, or does there need to be a separation? That's the question. 
I'd like to maybe answer that question by giving a little scenario. <clears throat> Josh, I'm going to pick on you. Is that all right? Okay. All right. Josh. Josh. We're just going to suppose that Josh, he's, he's sort of a wealthy man here in church, and he owns... One of those expensive, lim- uh, what do you call it, boys? Uh, a Lamborghini, Lamborghini, Lamborghini cars, two hundred thousand dollars worth. I looked it up last night. Okay, okay, you own it, and and I'm this heathen out on the street, and you're the good guy in the church here. You're a brother in the church. You're a solid brother. Okay, and one day, one day, I show up at his house and I steal the car. I steal the car. And, of course, him being the good man that he is, he, he doesn't press charges and he, he, you know, he, he reports and does different things, but I get away from, you know, with it and I'm driving this Lamborghini. And one day, Brother Elvin comes and shares the gospel with me and praise God, I get converted. Elvin brings me to church here and and, and Praise God! You know, I, I get con, you know I get converted. I'm I'm here in church, and, and Josh is sitting back there, saying, "You're right. Well, I'll I'll believe it once I get my car back." And I said, "Josh, Josh, no. I mean, the Bible says you need to forgive me. Josh, you need to forgive me. You know, yeah, I'm sorry that I did that, but I'm going to keep the car because it's my car now." Now, do you all get a point? Okay. The point is, the point is, in order for there to be a clearing, if I repent, it means that I need to make my wrongs right. It means that I need to give my car back. Even if, even if it's an old $500 car, not a Lamborghini. Right? I mean, even a $500 car. Josh sits there and says, we'll see, you know. All right, But true repentance is when we not only ask God to forgive us, but we go and we make all of our wrongs right. All of our wrongs right. This is what Zacchaeus said. Zacchaeus said these words. He said, if I have wronged any, I'm going to go and I'm going to make my wrongs right fourfold. I'm going to give back four times. That was his attitude. <clears throat> and I like to suggest that the same principle applies. Does the divorce situation before conversion allow a continuation? Uh, no, it does not. If there is a clear repentance, a clear repentance means that we make our wrongs right. Very clearly. <clears throat> Okay, here's another heading. What does it mean he causeth her to commit adultery? You know, there's some of us that read over those verses and we're not sure what it means. And what does that mean? He causeth her to commit adultery. You know, what does it mean? 
Yeah. Now that's what I like to answer. What does that little phrase mean? He causeth her to commit adultery. Uh, turn with me to the book of Matthew where that verse is, Matthew in chapter 5. We'll just turn there and read the scripture. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be reading in verse 32. <clears throat> it says, But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. <clears throat> Whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. But that term that we're looking at there is, what does it mean? He causeth her to commit adultery. Okay, let me just give you a little scenario. <clears throat> I, I'm married to my dear wife, Martha. Uh, you know, we... Yeah, we love each other. Let's just say the day would come when I just decide that I'm going to leave her. And so we separate. I'm turning my back. I'm going my own way. I'm doing what I want. But she's still being faithful. And so I'd be gone. And while I'm gone, <clears throat> you know, the children keep growing up. Time goes on. The children keep growing up. And the children keep leaving the house and and, 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 and the day comes, you know, she's still serving God. She's being faithful. But the day comes that she's all alone. The children are all gone. She's married to me, but she's lonely. The children are gone. I'm gone. She's all alone. And finally, in her loneliness, she goes and marries someone else. This verse is suggesting that I am causing her to commit adultery. You follow? He causeth her to commit adultery. <clears throat> Here's another question. Here's another heading. Is there any time when it is right to remarry outside a first marriage? Is there any time? Is there any time... That it's okay, that it's right uh, for there to be a marriage outside of a first marriage. Uh, is there ever a time like that? <clears throat> Turn with me to the book of Romans and we look to answer that question. In Romans chapter 7, that's where we're going to be reading. Romans chapter 7, we'd like to read. There is a condition that it's right to marry again. There is a condition that it's right to do that. In Romans chapter 7, we're going to read in verse 3. So then, while her husband liveth, she be married to another, she shall be called an adulteress. Now right here is the phrase. But... And if her husband be dead. Did you get that? <laughs> but and if her husband be dead. She is free from that law. So that she is no adulteress. Though she be married to another man. That's pretty clear right? That's very clear scripture. So is there any time. 
when it is right to remarry outside of first marriage. The Bible says, if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Here's another question. Does Scripture condemn polygamy? That's a tough one, right? (laughs) And I know that there's maybe many in this room that have gone round and round on this question. And it's a fair question to ask. It's a fair question to look at. Does Scripture condemn polygamy? And I know when I was a young boy, the idea of polygamy was far away. The idea that a man, that we come to the place where we know people who are, have a couple wives, that's far away. <clears throat> but a couple of years ago, we had some people at our house overnight. In Ohio, <laughs> we had them at our house overnight. And this man was a pastor. And he had two wives. They were both with us in the house. And we sat down there together and, and we talked and all of those kind of things. And we talked about those things too. <clears throat> but it's everywhere, even in America, all the immigrants coming in. And many of us have faced some of these challenges out and abroad, right? Where, you know, uh, working among some of the cultures that, you know, they're out and about. And there's a lot of questions concerning this whole idea of polygamy. There's a lot of questions with that. But I'd like to just give some thoughts here. Uh, I like to suggest that polygamy, and maybe I'll just be straight up front. Am I allowed to do that? I like to be just straight up front. I like to suggest that polygamy is adultery. Okay? And let me help you follow through the train of thought. I like to just bring us back to the whole idea of what was there in the beginning. You know, God established husband and wife. And then... Through the whole Old Testament era, polygamy was an accepted thing. If you look at King David, King David had many wives. His son Solomon had a thousand wives and, uh, what do you call them? The the concubines, a thousand of them. Unbelievable. But look at King David. There was a clear difference the day that he went and he committed adultery with Bathsheba, God judged him. But he didn't judge David because he had a number of wives. He didn't judge him for that. There's a a difference there. And so, with all that, sometimes those things are confusing. Then we come into the New Testament and we open the Bible And when there's a list going down through there of the sins of the flesh and it lists adultery and fornication and uncleanness 
and it lists all that, and there's no polygamy there. And we say, now what? Why isn't polygamy mentioned? If polygamy is a sin, why isn't it mentioned in that list? Why isn't it in there? Why isn't it? That's a good question. But like for us to consider what Jesus said when Jesus came onto the scene, Jesus all of a sudden started bringing some some things into order, right? For many years, uh, separation, you know, divorce and remarriage, that was okay. In the law of Moses, that was okay. It was okay in the law of Moses to divorce and to be remarried. But there's something that happens when Jesus came onto the scene. He said this. He, he took the people back to how it was in the beginning. Right? So how is that? You know, it's a little bit like... Uh, you know, we have electricity in our houses and all of a sudden there's too much pull on the, on the breaker and the breaker flips. And all of a sudden everything becomes sort of a jumble and, and so things aren't as they should be. And guess what we do? We go back over here and we sort of reset that breaker and all of a sudden it comes back to how it was, right? Okay, Jesus, Jesus took people back to how it was in the beginning. Consider this. <clears throat> Consider this. Turn with me to the book of Mark in chapter 10. We'd like to read a couple verses here. Mark chapter 10, in verse 2, it says, And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Tempting him. So they were expecting some kind of an answer. They knew that, that Moses had given exception. Moses, and Moses was fine with all this. <clears throat> and he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart he wrote you, he he wrote you this precept. Because of your hearts were as hard as they were, He gave you that freedom. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart, He wrote you this precept, but from the beginning of the creation of God, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Now, just like to ask you another question. What was the name of Adam's wife? Eve. What was the name of his second wife? There was none. So how was it in the beginning? One wife. Okay. So anything outside of the first marriage becomes adultery. 
something outside of that first marriage becomes adultery. And in the house, his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he said unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband, be married to another, she committeth adultery. And the disciples just went in shock. And they said, if that's really how it is, it's better not to even get married. If it's that serious, if it's that permanent, I, I don't even know if I want to get married. If, if, if there's no out, if, you know, if I have to stick with one wife, you know, if, you know, if I'm married and, and this thing's permanent, I don't know if I even want to get married. My. I hope, I think better things are happening around here than that. But, but you get the idea? Right? Okay. So, if you look at the context, Jesus, when he came, and Jesus interpreted the law, Jesus brought things and he made things clear. We all look at Jesus as an authority on the matter, don't we? Where did he take us? He took us right back to how it was in the beginning. One man and one wife. And anything out of that becomes adultery. But in the days of Moses, in the days of the kings, it was not that way. It was not that way. The accept clause What does it mean? The accept clause, what does it mean? Turn with me to the book of Mark in chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. These verses that we're going to be reading here, these, there's two, this, there's two situations or two times it's mentioned. One time in Mark, one time in Matthew. <clears throat> and if you look at, at, at the scenarios, if you just look at the, at the book of Mark, there seems to be no question <clears throat> uh, of how to interpret this. If you go to the book of Matthew, all of a sudden there's a lot of questions around. <clears throat> and I know that, you know that for many of us, we've, we've opened the Bible, we've come through this, and we stop and we say, well, what does that mean? I'm going to suggest that the scripture about where it says, except it be for fornication. That's, that's the term, okay? The term is, except it be for fornication. People will take that little phrase, that little phrase. If you talk to someone out there who's, quote, a Christian or even a non-Christian, but specifically the Christians that justify divorce and remarriage. They will go to this verse, and they will lift it up and say, well, the Bible says that it's okay. And my spouse uh, wasn't fornication. She was involved with someone else. So I'm free to get remarried. That's what they say. These verses that we're going to look at this is what people use. This is where the big, one of the big dialogues. There's another one 
Also in Corinthians, that's also used. But this is one of the primary, this is one of the big ones that's, that's used. Except it be for fornication. Now when we consider and look at the whole subject of how to interpret Scripture, it would seem to me, and I think many of us here would, would identify with this idea, that we use the clear to interpret the unclear, right? Is that how we interpret this, you know, Scripture? We use the clear Scriptures on the subject to help us clearly understand what the unclear Scriptures are. Okay. So we'll do that first. We'll look at Mark first, okay? Mark chapter 10. In verse 11, we're going to read here. And he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery. Oh, wow. No, no argument, right? No argument. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. There's nothing, nothing is more clear than that. It's just day and night, just clear, clear, you know, clear, totally clear. Now turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 19. Matthew, chapter 19. Matthew, chapter 19, and verse 8, it says, And he saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication. Okay, what I like to do there is just put your hand over that phrase, okay? And let's read it without that phrase in. Whosoever shall put away his wife, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. Whosoever, and whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Okay? So that's that phrase in there is, is what's... Is what we want to talk about. Except it be for fornication. <clears throat> what does that mean? What does that clause mean? Now, again, I'm not an authority, okay? But I, I'm here to give some suggestions for us to consider that this is probably what this means. And if you have some other thoughts, I'm open to hear that. Okay, but I'd like to suggest... <clears throat> Consider with me in the Hebrew culture. In the Hebrew culture, when a man wanted a maid, he came and he proposed and he said, I want to marry this girl. And there was the plans made, the dowry was paid, and, and the plan was that he's going to come back in the future. But that was called the betrothal. And that betrothal time could only be broken through divorce. Right? That betrothal time could only be broken through divorce. Consider with me the Virgin Mary and Joseph. The Virgin Mary, when uh, Mary was betrothed to Joseph, and when Joseph... All of a sudden, he finds out that Mary is with child. And 
he being a just man, and he, he realized, she's not who I thought she was. I thought she was a pure virgin. Here, I discover that she's been with a man. And the Bible says that he was minded to put her away privately. He was minded to do that. I'd like to suggest this is very possibly what this is talking about. Okay? They hadn't come together yet. There was a plan made. They were betrothed. Plans were all in order. It was all in place. And then the angel of God comes to Joseph and he tells Joseph. He says, Joseph, you know, Joseph, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. Thy wife? (laughs) He wasn't living with her. He had never slept with her. But there was a betrothal. The plans were made. I like to suggest that that is what this is talking about. In a situation like that, it's okay. That would fit in with some of our earlier thoughts of the two things of marriage, right? It would fit right in there. <clears throat> I'd like to just suggest that what he is talking about is a situation when they have not yet come together in a clear marriage, except it be for fornication. I'd like to suggest, if you compare this scripture, for us to take this verse and go against what Mark says is a very clear inconsistency. (laughs) Very clear inconsistency. We cannot, (laughs) we cannot take away. Mark very clearly says, if a man leaves... And divorces and get remarried, that's adultery. There's just no question. Consider that. I'd like to just propose that there's a good, that that is very possibly what that means. Here's another heading. Is separating sin? We're not talking about getting remarried. We're talking about the separation. Okay? We're talking about a man and a woman. The Bible says um, that it's God that joins them together and let, and let no man put them asunder. Now, is it sin for a man and a woman to just separate but not get remarried? Is that sin? To answer that question, I'm just going to read some verses, okay? Because I don't want to add or take away from, from, from what it says, okay? This is what it says in Matthew 19, verse 6. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Here's another verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. It says, And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. 
but, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. So is it a sin? But, and if she depart, okay, let not the wife depart from her husband, but, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the wife put away his, not the husband put away his wife. Just leave it at that. Gives it clearly God's will, and he gives another statement of clarity with it. <clears throat> like to also just touch a little bit on there in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 15. <clears throat> sometimes in verse 15 and 16, sometimes these verses are also used to justify divorce and remarriage. <clears throat> This is what it says. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. People will use this verse to say, I'm no longer under bondage. I can do whatever I want to. I like to suggest that this verse is not talking, it's not giving direction about divorce and remarriage. It's simply giving direction. <clears throat> These verses are giving direction in the situation where you have a brother or a sister in the church and you have a godly spouse that's here in the church and the other one decides to leave. And if the one partner decides to leave and the other one is faithful, faithful, it's giving direction how that faithful one should respond to it. That's, it's, it's just simply giving direction. It's not giving a freedom to divorce and remarry. It's not doing that. Some people use it to say that, but that's not what it means. <clears throat> a brother or a sister is not under bondage in these situations, but God has called us to peace. It's simply saying there's freedom. There shouldn't be uh, you know, a woman that if her husband leaves or if a husband and wife leaves, either one way or another, uh, there's a freedom there where you can still continue to serve God, but there's no option to remarry. The permanence of marriage. i like for us to just reflect back to my, some of my initial statements. I guess i like to communicate there's a burden on my heart. If I could just say this, I believe the influence in our society is affecting us in our churches. I believe. And I believe that many are getting married for self-gratification and for selfish purposes. And I like to suggest that God has a godly order in the home. And He wants us to function in that. And God's plan is for us to have a lifelong commitment that whatever comes our way, we're willing <clears throat> to do whatever it takes to sort through those issues. Because we are an example of Christ in the church. We are an example. Our marriages ought to be reflecting <laughs> our relationship 
with us and God. But I'd like to just suggest somehow, somehow we are weakening in our steadfastness and we are looking at marriage for self-gratification rather than for the right purposes the way Scripture puts out. And we are becoming weak. We, us Anabaptist people, are becoming weak. And it's for that reason that many of us would raise our hands and say, we have relatives that are divorced and remarried. I'd like for us to just consider carefully, where are we with all those things? God help us.